This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, well, we had to get around to it sometime in 2014. It's the presidential election of 2016, a mere two and a half years away. But let's face it, you can talk about chain CPI all you want, but the open White House awaiting the 45th president of the United States is creating a giant sucking sound for attention even now. So today we'll start with the Democrats talking with two people who've looked closer than anyone at the dynamic between two top contenders. Amy Chozik covers what's known as the Clinton beat for The New York Times, and Glenn Thrush just published a definitive portrait of Vice President Joe Biden for Politico magazine. Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, two hardened public servants with miles on their odometers who declare themselves friends and hedge their bets for 2016. Biden wants everyone to know he's still in the game. Hillary wants everyone to know her future is TBD. And the next real public move for either of them is probably a year away after the 2014 midterms. But let's dive into the people and their orbits, giving Polyoptics listeners a head start in understanding the dynamics afoot under Hillary's and Joe's own roof and among their camps and the larger diaspora of the Democratic Party waiting to see who will make the first move in what promises to be a two-year chess match. Glenn Thrush at the bottom of the hour, but right now from here in New York, Amy Chozik of the New York Times. Welcome, Amy, to Polyoptics. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, When I heard through uh, our mutual acquaintance, Jake Seward, that Amy Chozik was assigned to the Clinton beat, uh, it certainly made me scratch my head. Why does the Times decide to even assign a full-time reporter to an ex-Secretary of State and ex-President? Um, that's a good question that you should ask my editors. Um, in, in terms of covering her, I, I would describe my job as covering the Democratic field, uh, presidential field, which right now, as you know, is largely dominated by sort of her larger-than-life presence. And I think that if she you know, w- did not have such a public uh, presence right now, there would not be as much to cover. But, of course, I'm not alone on, uh, on covering her every move. I, have, uh, I feel like I have new competitors every day. And, you know, there's just a huge amount of interest, I think, for, for one or another. New York paper, so they live in New York now, and their charitable operation is here. Um, and so I think there's interest there, and there's just, you know, interest in, in what she's doing. One guy who's a competitor on and off is Mark Halpern, who published a piece uh, this week in Time Magazine about Ready for Hillary. And Mark has been in the Clinton scrum since 1991 when I worked for the Clintons. And I'm curious about to what extent when It's known that you are there writing these stories and covering anything that has to do with the Clintons and the field, as you say. Mm -hmm. Do people like Philippe and Nick and the former president and Mm -hmm. other people in what would be the orbit of Planet Hillary, do they ingratiate themselves to you? Do they try and create relationships with you that will last for the next two years? Um, I think, I mean, you know, it's always tricky to have relationships um, when you're writing a mix of both kind of nicer stories and the tougher ones. So it's always a contentious relationship, no matter what you're covering. You know, when I was a business reporter, it was the same way. And so, but there definitely are things that she's doing now that, you know, they want coverage for. Um, For instance, her, you know, initiatives on women and girls with the foundation. She's been talking a lot about elephant poaching. She's been talking about all these kind of pet causes and, uh, and they definitely want, you know, us to show up at that and cover.
cover them. And then there's this, you know, give and take of, of course, they also don't want to increase scrutiny this early in the game. Who would want that? So you mentioned your time earlier as a business reporter Mm -hmm. and the varied career that you had leading up to Mm -hmm. this most recent assignment. Bring our listeners through what what goes into a career that eventually leads you to look at the 2016 Democratic field. Where were you before? Well, I was uh, in Secretary Clinton, then Senator Clinton's traveling press. Um, I, I joined her traveling press. I was then with the Wall Street Journal in 2007 when there were, you know, about eight of us in a van in Iowa, and we thought she was the inevitable candidate. So it's really interesting to be sort of looking at it now where she seems to be in a similar position um, in terms of inevitability. I covered her, let's see, I was in like 48 states traveling around with her when it was sort of obvious that she wasn't going to be the nominee. I switched over to Obama, traveled with him uh, through the White House, covered transition, early White House years. Um, and then I didn't move to Washington, and I covered the media business, which is when the Times hired me. Um, and I covered Rupert Murdoch and phone hacking and all kinds of fun stories on the media beat before you know I was asked to kind of dive back into Clinton world. But I'd always kept a hand in um, Clinton world. I got first interview with Chelsea Clinton for a, a style story. I traveled to Africa with the president to write about his charitable work there. Um, and so I'd always just had an interest and a hand in Clinton stuff. So in the course of the, the rest of our conversation, I, mm-hmm. I do sort of want to revolve <clears throat> like an orbit around your big piece for the magazine a few weeks ago, Planet sure. Hillary. But you've, you've thrown in many stories in the newspaper and online since then. So we'll touch on those as well. Mm-hmm. But to begin with, just to give people a sense, <clears throat> if they were born after a certain time, after I started working for the Clintons back in 92, uh, what it was like low those 20-something years ago, and I'm not sure how old you were, Amy, at the time, but let's hear a little bit of Bill and Hillary Clinton with Arsenio Hall. You all know this lady. Um, yes, yes. The strength beside the man. Not behind anymore, but beside. Uh, through all this controversy, have you ever found yourselves at home fighting, honestly? No. No, uh-uh. not about anything important. We fight about what movie we want to see. This is the only movie we're going to see for a month, and you're going to make me see this crazy Cheap Thrills movie? You want to go see Lethal Weapon 3 when we've got all these other movies on? That's the kind of stuff we fight about. Oh, Amy Chozik, The New York Times. It feels like such fiction 20 years ago. That's a Um, great clip. I love that. So when you're covering uh, Senator Clinton on her campaign and then Secretary Clinton and now Clinton in this... uh, uh, intermediate period, how much do you go back and study things like that and who the first lady of Arkansas was or that uh, Capitol Hill aide on the Watergate committee or even the young uh, law school graduate or Wellesley College student? Oh, I think it's absolutely essential, and it's one reason I really like this beat, is that it really is a, you know, you learn about the history of the country. They've been prominent in politics for so many decades. You know, I've taken several trips to Little Rock to meet people who knew them back in the day, the library, the archives. Those are really great. I mean, there was this recently, this big trove of White House documents released, and people sort of dug through them looking for that smoking gun. But to me, just reading through them, finding out, you know, what life in the White House was like, it's fascinating and so informative because especially when you look at her career, each kind of each step and each chapter in her career informs the next. You know, you saw how healthcare informed her. You saw how her speech in Beijing, you know, she's still speaking about. And so I think it's really important. You know, I've read tons of books. I really consider myself a student of, of the Clintons and it's, uh, it's fascinating. 
Yeah. So when you're going back to Little Rock, <clears throat> you also have a little time to write some side stuff. <laughs> Hotel ducks gone wild may end up in hunters' sights. <laughs> you know, when I was in Little Rock a lot, it used to be called the Excelsior, and then it became right. the Peabody. And and then the obligatory ducks from Memphis showed up. But what's the problem with the ducks now at the at the Peabody in Little Rock? Oh, I love that you read my duck story. That's Thank a great you. story. Um, that was something that just you know it's great getting out of New York and Washington and finding these threads. Um, and so I we used to stay at the Peabody uh, when I was in her traveling press, and we would love when the ducks like waddled down the elevator into the fountain. And last time I stayed there, it was a Marriott. So you know the more I talked to people. They'd say, well, it's a damn shame what happened to those ducks, you know, and I was like, what happened to the ducks? And nobody really knew where the ducks went, and they heard that they had gone to this ranch, but that they weren't adjusting very well because they were raised in a hotel lobby. So um, I went on this quest, you know, I put, I put the Clinton reporting a little bit on hold and I went on this quest to find the Peabody Ducks and met some real characters along the way. It was very fun. Christmas story, actually, right when duck hunting season was in full swing. So do you imagine any of them have ended up in a hunter's pouch at this point? Yeah, I think the odds are not good given how many ducks they kill in Arkansas. I have a friend uh, who went down for the annual uh, coon dinner and oh, did a duck hunt with, uh, with Senator Pryor as well. Oh, I wanted to go to that. I even had tips on which piece of coon to grab. Like, the bigger ones are all bones, so you don't have to eat as much raccoon meat. Anyway, i got to go to that next year. Next year, indeed. <laughs> but but uh, troving through the papers, you see uh, stuff by my friend Lisa Caputo, by yeah. Gene Sperling, yeah. by uh, David Shipley. Uh, great reading, wasn't it? Oh, so great. Um, yeah, I mean, those are all great people who are also still, you know, very much part of the orbit, which, you know, speaks a lot, I think, particularly to Secretary Clinton's ability to keep, you know, kind of loyal aides around her. I mean, even though, of course, Lisa has a corporate job and people move on to other jobs, they're always friends. They would always jump back in when they're needed. So let's now get to sort of the the question at hand, and you've <clears throat> written articles and blog posts teeing up the the question itself in various iterations of the headline, but uh, maybe nothing does it better than her conversation recently at the University of Miami with President Donna Shalala. You give us some insight into how the TBD in your bio will play out. Well, I'd really like to, but I have no characters left. I have a feeling that if I ask you what's, what you might be planning in a couple of years, no, you're probably not going to answer. <laughs> let, me ask you, let me ask you this instead. Um, how important is it for there to be a woman president in the United States? <laughs> oh. I, I told you he was very smart. Uh, <laughs> That, that's a, that, that is a question that I will answer taking myself totally out of it. And it is, for me, a part of the larger uh, mission to expand political participation uh, and leadership uh, among women around the world. Amy Chozik of the New York Times, how prayed over was those three letters TBD and the general Twitter bio that Secretary Clinton is using? And then uh, I want to talk about how the different ways in which she's trying to answer that question. <laughs> 
Well, I love the Twitter, her whole presence on Twitter for a few reasons. I mean, for one, of course, the intrigue of the TBD, and that Miami student who submitted that question was probably the most creative way I've heard it phrased, but it also, you know, allowed her to kind of show her witty side, which is something that, you know, her aides are always saying people still don't see what a funny, warm person she is, and I think the her Twitter bio mom, wife, you know, pantsuit wearer, whatever it is exactly. I know it shows kind of a personal side that, you know, people feel like after so many decades in politics, people still don't really see. And I thought in Miami, you know, she was really quick with that witty response of I've I run out of characters. So I think it, you know, allows her to show the side that I think a lot of people would say in 2008 was sort of hidden from voters. They saw her as more cold and calculating and, Likeable you know. enough. Likeable enough, exactly. But Amy, you listen to it on the radio and it almost sounds performed. The timing of it sounds mm-hmm. nicely rolled out to Donna Shalala, her friend mm-hmm. sitting across the stage. Well, yes. And in my story, I said she gives seemingly unscripted responses. So I think uh, whether they were in advance, but apparently everybody I talked to who has coordinated with the Clinton staff to get her to do Q&As and speeches says that, you know, they'd say, ask anything you want, and she does not know what the questions will be in advance, and they say there's no topic that's off limits. And you might advise people in those audiences to say, don't bother asking the question because you're just going to get another iteration of the answer. Exactly, exactly. Hey, what are you finding out in your reporting? Because this is polyoptics, and it is about the image, and I do mm-hmm. think about people like Philippe, who I mm-hmm. count as a friend. Um, <clears throat> the various strictures that are put in place for the paid speeches against recording and photography. Yeah, it's. I mean, I feel like those rules, because she delivers a pretty innocuous speech from everything I've heard, I think those rules are more that so she can deliver the same canned speech to, you know, trade groups across the country, and they won't necessarily know it. Because she, the, the speech is so kind of generic. I mean, she gives advice like, you can't win if you don't show up, and, you know, and leadership is a team sport. I mean, these very kind of standard, probably a similar speech that you'd hear from Colin Powell or other paid paid speakers on the circuit. So I actually think the audio is not so much, you know, worried about what she's saying, but that they don't, she uses the same speech all the time. I mean, that said, I think there are probably events um, we know she's doing with Wall Street with, with hedge funds um, that are in smaller settings that, you know, I would love to listen to. If there were moons in the orbit of planet Hillary, Amy Chozik, the the biggest moon might be called Big Dog. Mm-hmm. And I want to hear a little bit of his conversation with Fareed Zakaria at the Clinton Global Initiative last year. When you look at her poll numbers, um, can any other Democrat even get into the race? I mean, how would you raise money when you have... I, I don't think I've seen numbers like this. It's close to 70% Democrats say they would vote for her. Well, I think... Partly that's because she served well as Secretary of State and because people across the political spectrum finally got to see her the way those of us who know her see her. And, you know, when, when, you're, when I was president and she, like me, was subject to a long line of relentless criticism, and she did in the Senate. And she made a lot of friends in the Senate among Republicans as well as Democrats and People in New York liked her across the political spectrum, but it was the first time the country had ever gotten to see her as somebody who just what you see is what you get. She shows up for work every day, gets stuff done. A lot of gravity to that moon, too, huh, Amy? Oh, absolutely. Um, And he said something similar to me when I interviewed him in Africa in um, 
2012 when she was sort of at the apex of her uh, Secretary of State days, you know, taking shots in uh, South America and hitting the dance floor in South Africa. And um, and I think he's right in that, you know, partly she had such a great image then because she was in a non-political role. Um, but I, I, I love the idea that he talks about now the country sees her the way I've always seen her. I mean, that to me is a powerful message that, you know, he could very effectively take to the stump. So you're assigned by the magazine to write the big piece. Uh, <clears throat> the gravitational pull of a t- possible 2016 campaign is bringing all the old Clinton characters into orbit. Can she make the stars align or will chaos prevail? You describe these constellations with these fun labels, Amy. <laughs> POTUS Patrol, Chelsea's People, The Inner Circle, Loyal Henchmen, 2008 victors, 2008 victims, the people who do all the work, the white boys, State Department wingmen, East Wing divas, let me uh, Obama baddies, Senate survivors, frenemies, Arkansas pals, FOBs, posers, former BFFs, ubiquitous alumni. What an amazing trope, an organizational trope to describe this. And how did you come up with Planet Hillary in these orbits? Thank you. You know, I, I think the uh, cover, the graphic of her face is, a, is like a hairless planet. What did Philippe say about the cover? It got so much attention that it, I didn't hear that many comments about the inside chart, but I'm glad you pointed it out because to me, it, a, a lot of work and thinking and reporting went into where people were in the chart. It wasn't just like, let's do a layout and throw some And you come up with some heads. very uh, sort of out, you know, sort of more uh, beneath the surface names, like my friend Stephanie Street, obviously Doug and others, but people who aren't usually talked about or, or note or identified in print. Oh, Stephanie Street's so great. Absolutely. Love her. Um, she I got it. She gave me a tour of the library, which was really cool. Um, but yeah, I think that there are, you know, there are so many people. Honestly, you could add a thousand more names to that. There are so many people, and I think it speaks to, well, you know, the warmth of the Clintons and the way that they are so inclusive. Um, I think it's an interesting contrast with Obama because he is criticized for being, you know, aloof, not inclusive, especially when it comes to donors. He sort of had the same, same handful of friends from Chicago when he, you know, before he became president that he'll have when he leaves. And the Clintons, their, you know, onion, their world just keeps expanding and they just keep bringing people into the circle. I mean, that can obviously be hugely beneficial, um, but it can also have its downsides. You know, there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. There are a lot of people who feel an interest. There are some people who, you know, have exploited their relationships for um, for business purposes. So, um, but it is, their, their, their personality, I think, is just to bring more and more people into their circle. And and if she's going to win in 2016, she's got to do things that are more like where the world is going to be in 2016 and not where it was in 1992. That's right. And I would say not even the way it was in 2008. You know, something Ready for Hillary is always saying is that we hired the Obama guys, the, you know, Jeremy Byrd, and we're doing the data and grassroots just like the Obama guys did. And it's like, well, you, I mean, of course, that's helpful. You got to do that. But you also got to think like, uh, you know, someone in my story told me, you got to think who is the next David Plouffe. I mean, what are are campaigns going to look like in 2016? It's going to be different than 2008. And I think even beyond bringing the Obama guys, and you got to find those new guys who have this totally new way of doing things and shaping elections. Among the, among the most readily recognizable names of Ready for Hillary is uh, an old friend of mine, Craig Smith. I want to hear a little bit of a conversation he had on an Arkansas TV station not that long ago. One of the things we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure that there is an uh, outlet 
for all of this enthusiasm that's across the country, not only here in Arkansas, but in all 50 states, of people who think Hillary Clinton should be the next president of the United States. They think she's the most qualified candidate in either party, and there's this excitement out there. And it is our goal to try to organize and channel all of this excitement. It's the oddest thing, Amy, to think that Craig is coordinating in no way with Hillary or Bill uh, and that Ready for Hillary is plugging along along with um, uh, the other super PAC that's involved. And uh, so you've written about it in a way in which Ready for Hillary started sort of on a dime with a young young man who was a, a... very young aide of Hillary's. Where is uh, where's the thinking now about Ready for Hillary? Because you've written about it just uh, very recently. Um, yeah, I would say, I mean, when you say Ready for Hillary and another pack, I would emphasize priorities and another pack um, because, <laughs> you know, priorities, obviously the one Jeffrey Katzenberg's behind, Andy right. Spawn, big money, they Andy. hired Jim Messina. Um, I think that they are the pack that's going to be the big dollar donations. Um, I think Ready for Hillary is really interesting and it's, um, and, you know, and it's great to, to signal that young people are already doing grassroots stuff. I mean, they have, they're very creative. They have fundraisers where it's $20.16 to get in and they, you know, they serve drinks called the ceiling breaker and things like that. So I think it's like they're such different organizations, one big money pack, you know, the other grassroots building a list. And so um, I think it's interesting that she has both going on. I think Ready for Hillary is getting a ton of media coverage right now and they are doing great things, but it's partly because no campaign exists. So it's sort of the closest, as Craig said, it's the place for everybody who wants to be involved and channel their enthusiasm to channel it. And so uh, that's kind of where the action is right now. Another very important character in the 2016 race uh, emerged in 2008 and has even been uh, making even more of a statement for herself, even at South by Southwest this week. And that's... uh, Secretary Clinton's, Bill Clinton's daughter, Chelsea. I want to hear a little bit of her uh, keynote on stage at South by Southwest. So I'm obsessed with diarrhea. And I, I will find like quite specious ways to be able to talk about diarrhea. Um, and you're not all going to be laughing by the time I finish because you're also going to realize how serious it is. Um, but one of the reasons I talk a lot about diarrhea is because it doesn't make me squeamish. And it makes a lot of people squeamish. Uh, And I find the fact that more than 750,000 children still die every year around the world because of severe dehydration due to diarrhea, unacceptable. And the reason that no longer happens here in the United States is because we have clean water, largely. Amy, you make a big point in your article, uh, Planet Hillary, about uh, Chelsea's emergence into the Bill, Hillary, and Chelsea Clinton Foundation, the uh, clash between Chelsea and uh, Doug Band uh, as the d- future direction the foundation would take. Where is Chelsea's input being uh, felt these days? And uh, you certainly see o- other friends of mine in Chelsea's particular orbit, people like Craig Manassian. Oh, how great is Craig? Awesome. Um, so I, I think her presence is felt everywhere. And I'm glad you played a clip of that South By speech because that was Chelsea Clinton delivering the keynote address to 6,000, 7,000 people at South by Southwest. And I thought that was a big moment for her. Think about a few years ago when she wouldn't give a media interview, when she was, you know. I think pr- about a young girl in the, in the White House 
Oh, well, yeah, a lot of people still do. I think that I think that is a frustration of her growing team that a lot of, um, you know, older aides still think of her as a kid in the White House. And she's very much asserted herself as running the foundation. Um, I think if her mom ran, she would play a key, a, a very key role. And you know what? It could be a great thing because she has that sort of McKinsey consulting hat on. Um, she could be that link between old Clinton inner circle and the new data crunching types. But I mean, who knows? I definitely thought that that speech at South by Southwest was so classically Chelsea, so policy driven, so wonky, but also, you know, very warm. I thought she, she did a lot better in the Q and a than the, um, than the speech, but, but she was, um, yeah, she was really asserting herself as a public figure. She seems a lot more comfortable in that setting than she has as the special correspondent for NBC news. Yeah, I think, I mean, TV's tough. Yeah, she has, but I think she's, uh, she's gotten a lot better at that. Another important player that will come up uh, certainly in the next uh, few years is a person who, you know, you have to deal with if you're going to deal with uh, Mrs. Clinton's world, and that's Philippe Reines, Philippe Reines. And uh, I want to hear a little bit of his uh, class day speech at Columbia University from 2009. Um, as some of you may have noticed, my boss, Secretary of State Clinton, was actually standing at this podium only a few hours ago. Uh, she addressed the, the Barnard um, graduation. I tried to talk her out of it, but I, I couldn't. Um, as she was leaving campus, uh, she noticed that I wasn't leaving with her. Uh, and she looked at me and asked, aren't you coming? And I told her, nah, I'm going to stay and see my mother, which... Narrowly speaking, um, which is what I'm paid to do as a spokesman, is absolutely correct and truthful. My mother is here in the audience, even though I forgot to give you this, I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, And I will be seeing her later. Amy Philippe is one of the most uh, uh, aggressive spokespeople that I've ever come across, a guy I I call a friend, but he's also behind the scenes, funny, warm, and charming. And um, how is he dealing with sort of this period, and uh, how do you think he will evolve as as a potential Clinton campaign gets underway? Um, I'm not sure. That's hard to say. I mean, in 2008, he wasn't really running the press shop. Uh, you know, they had Howard Wolfson yep. and other people, and um, Philippe was in her Senate staff and then did a lot of things with Chelsea. And obviously, he, um, you know, did a great job when she was at State. She got uh, great positive um, positive press, and now he's got his own business as well as, uh, you know, his time helping uh, the secretary with her press. So we'll see. I think he's going to have a, um, a key role in the rollout of her memoir, which is due out this summer. And, you know, I think he would, I'm sure he would be helping with her media presentations, her book tour and all of that. What is, uh, what's in front of your screen right now getting ready to pop on, on this beat? Are you, anything brewing right now? I can't tell you that. Oh, come on. <laughs> um, you know, it's fun. It keeps me busy. I, I think when I first got this job, people said, you're going to cover one person for the next four years, but I don't see this beat as being one person. Now, you mentioned that chart. I think it's the entire sort of orbit, the, the uh, extended, you know, Clinton family. There's all kinds of things to cover that I think are are interesting. And, uh, and you know, I'm allowed to do a duck story when I find those stories, too. They're so. beautiful. Amy Chozik uh, of the New York Times Thanks so much for joining us on Polyoptics. Thanks for having me. POTUS. POTUS. History in the making. Sirius XM 124.
as promised at the top of the hour. And in fact, as I've been promising for a couple weeks now, I've been desperate to get Glenn Thrush of Politico magazine on the show to talk about his uh, and his massive profile of Joe Biden headline Joe Biden in winter. Uh, Glenn uh, has been with the Politico magazine since its inception late last year, the same sort of week that I published my Dukakis and the Tank piece. But Glenn had the cover story of the print magazine locked in the cabinet. And he's now back with his second big cover story, Biden in winter. Glenn Thrush, welcome to Polyoptics. Great to be here, and I just want to give you a belated shout out for that uh, uh, for that uh, fantastic uh, Dukakis uh, piece, which included uh, a cameo from our mutual friend Jim Kessler. Of course, of course, you know. It, but but I only do it as sort of a busman's holiday. You do this stuff as a living. But I was curious, Glenn. You know, you've gone you've gone from <clears throat> your roles before Politico to covering the Hill for Politico, and basically always being on deadline to now being sort of uh, uh, the profile filer-in-chief for Politico. What's been the transition like for you to go from, you know, quick stories to things that have so much color and nuance? Well, that's really interesting. Uh, I like to tell people that I have, um, my, my career has been at every time increment in journalism. Um, I've been, I've worked for wire services, I've worked for dailies, but my my original career path uh, before I, uh, I came to Politico was as a magazine writer. I mean, a decade ago, I used to write for Spin Magazine and then Times Magazine in New York. Uh, and for a while, I, I edited my own magazine in New York that covered low-income communities called City Limits. So this is really kind of a return for me, and it's, it's, uh, it's just such a, uh, a privilege and a pleasure to be able to spend six, eight, ten weeks even on, on these stories that, you know, uh, I would sometimes get six, eight, ten hours to write. And, you know, as I was talking to um, uh, to the editors at Politico magazine about the Dukakis piece, I was wondering, well, how I, I've come to know the layout of Politico for so many years, and it's pretty simple and straightforward. How are you going to really make a magazine format sing in the digital world? But uh, your piece uh, on Joe Biden is so lush with the photographs and the images that you put in. You must be very pleased with how the designers and technology folks at the magazine have been able to bring the magazine into a digital format. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, how do you kind of mesh our digital sensibility and our sense of immediacy with, with the conventional magazine structure? And uh, I give all of the credit to uh, Susan Glasser, who is our very talented uh, editor-in-chief. And she was, you know, previously at the Washington Post, played a big role there in foreign policy. And also uh, Janet Michaud, who is our, uh, our designer, who, uh, who did a lot of design work at the Post, to the Outlook section, and also a bunch of stuff for the Boston Globe. So I think, it, you know... We are getting to the point, uh, I think, uh, I don't know about you, I read the New Yorker now almost exclusively on my tablet, um, and it really does seem, with these flexible designs, it does seem to be really designed for that. So, um, you know, I think anyone who approaches a magazine uh, nowadays, TNR recently did a redesign, really has to lead with the digital, because, I mean, the vast majority of our readers and, and I believe the same is true for the other publications are going to be in the digital medium. And, and, you know, the truth of the matter is people want to see something that looks good. And uh, up until now, that has really been very much secondary, certainly with our website. But I think that is thankfully starting to change. And, you know, with like the opening of the Getty Photo Archives for 
to a larger public, um, the number of images that are available to kind of move in and out of these stories and the flexibility that design directors have is, is, is enormous. So I think it's going to keep rolling in that direction. Yeah, I, I'm totally there with you, and I think I read everything electronically, and yet... I still subscribe to New Yorker and Vanity Fair and the New York Times, and they sit next to my bed, the pile growing, the paper unopened. I'm trying to read what I can on the tablet because, hell, it's easier to climb into bed with it than than keep the lights on. But I feel so sad for those unread pieces of paper that are on my desk. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, this is a constant source. This is probably the largest source of marital stress in my household because my wife is very much a paper consumer and I am, uh, uh, you know, and, and our subscriptions, for instance, to the Washington Post and the New York Times, you know, oftentimes are going to stay in those plastic bags and both my wife and myself are going to be sitting across from each other at the kitchen table reading it on tablets or on a laptop. So, uh, you know, but but again, the challenge is to give people something and the assets of a magazine is the tangibility, something you can hold in your hand and the quality of uh, and art in the graphics. And I think, uh, you know, it, it is a struggle to integrate that stuff and to sort of get people's sensibilities around looking at stuff on a screen. So, Glenn Thrush, let's get to uh, the vice president, because we had uh, Amy Chozik on in the first half hour, talked about uh, Planet Hillary, and basically <clears throat> there's so many people around her in these in these orbits and sub-solar systems around her that it's almost too much to manage for the Clintons, and the portrait that you paint of Joe Biden in winter is actually a very small handful of people who will come to Wilmington or come to the Naval Observatory and talk about political strategy with him. A much smaller world and seemingly, Glenn Thrush, getting smaller all the time. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting dynamic. You know, I I met Amy and we spent essentially 18 months traveling around with Hillary in 2007 and 2008. And we both saw up close day to day this constant turnstile of of staffers jockeying to be uh, around Hillary. It was really, you know, it was was kind of like, you know, Louis XIV's court. Um, Joe Biden is much more of a portable uh, guy with a very small group of people. I think I I write in that about a, a series of meetings that took place over the Christmas holiday where Biden was really strategizing about his future. And, you know, his entire group of, of advisors could fit inside of his living room in Wilmington, and, and they often do. You know, while that is an advantage in terms of uh, him being able to keep his circle tight, um, it really, uh, you know, and gives him uh, a circle of trusted people around him and a certain comfort level. It does, on the flip side, sort of rob him of uh, the pool of talent that I think Clinton is going to take advantage of. So, you know, it's very interesting watching these uh, these management styles of, of of candidates and potential candidates. And I think, you know, that is the big rap on, on Biden. And when he tried to expand his circle to include people like Steve Reschetti, who is currently his chief of staff, and, and even a guy like Kevin Sheeke, one of Mayor Mike, former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg's top advisors. Yeah, um, he was uh, he was shot down by the White House. So even as uh, Biden attempted to kind of expand that circle, he's had difficulty doing so. And when you write about my old friend Alan Hoffman trying to <clears throat> do a little bit of a foray out west to Hollywood, again, sort of uh, a hand slapped. 
Yeah, and it wasn't anything, you know, the, the, the interesting part about this, it didn't necessarily have anything to do with the Clinton people uh, running over to, uh, to uh, I mean, the, Biden, uh, the Obama folks allying themselves with, with Hillary and her people, even though that has happened lately. It had much more to do with the sense uh, that people like David Plouffe and Jim Messina, who ran the 2012 campaign, had of keeping Biden focused on Obama and not uh, on Biden. Um, and those frictions continue, uh, continue to this day. So in terms of starting out on this article that ends up being headlined Joe Biden in winter, you, you established sort of who you are as a magazine writer for Political Magazine with Locked in the Cabinet, didn't paint the most flattering picture of being an Obama cabinet member. Uh, do you have trouble getting through to Sheila Murray and the other people in the Obama camp to say, Glenn wants to do a profile. They don't exactly know how it comes out. They don't exactly know how you're going to portray. And the end result is this winter metaphor. Are they pleased that they allowed you in in and got him on Amtrak with Joe? Well, uh, you know, that's a really great question. And, and, and you know, and it speaks to the way that I, I tend to do my job. I've been doing this for a while. And, and, and my sense of things is as long as you, you allow people to understand your approach up front and, and let them understand uh, how you are going to do the piece, uh, and that you don't sort of sneak around, uh, sneak around and attempt to kind of obfuscate. Um, if you're dealing with relatively mature people, and that's a big caveat, obviously, <laughs> um, they will tend they will tend to uh, to be able to accept what you what you produce. And I think the response on this story has not been enthusiastic, uh, but it also has led to my marginalization. So, Glenn Thrush, we we had our conversation with Amy about Planet Hillary, and one of the things I did to sort of set the stage was brought people back, way back, to 1992, an appearance with Arsenio Hall in which Bill and Hillary Clinton sat on the couch with Arsenio and talked about how they never fight. I want to remind our listeners not of who the Joe Biden vice president is in 2014, but who this person was that I started following as a young student and and follower of politics. Let's begin by going back to the Senate floor, 1987, uh, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator Joe, Joe Biden, talking about the hearings that have just concluded about Robert Bork's nomination to the Supreme Court. 40 million people watched him. He spoke. I time and again raised the gavel and said, are you certain, Judge, you've had enough time to respond to the questions? And when it was all over, I said to Judge Bork, now, Judge Bork, do you think you got a fair hearing? He said, yes. Anything else you want to say, Judge Bork? No. Anything at all you want to clarify? No. Then, the public opinion polls were taken. And then the American people said, Judge Bork should not be in the court. Today, Glenn, Joe Biden is 71, but he was a much younger man back then. To get ready for this profile, did you go back and read a lot of the history, see a lot of these moments, and understand who this young lion used to be? Yeah, how, how can you not? I mean, to understand Biden, you know, when, when you write about Hillary, everything... 
is uh, is an extension of the battles that she fought in the in in the in the nineteen nineties and to some extent going back to the seventies when she was on the Watergate committee. Biden, everything needs to be understood uh, through his past. I mean, he has had three distinct uh, components of his career. The first was the very beginning in, when he was elected in seventy two in Delaware, and uh, in an almost unbelievable uh, turn of events, as most people know, his wife and thirteen month old daughter were killed in a car crash between the time of his election and when he was uh, sworn in. I mean, he, his, you know, his sister has told other people, but she told me when I interviewed her, he seriously considered not going into the Senate. So he had that first uh, incredible trial. And then the second part of his career was building himself up into a national figure. And he was really on the precipice of leadership in his own party at that time with Bork. And then he essentially imploded uh, over the Neil Kinnock, still controversial yeah. comments, uh, accusations that he stole Neil Kinnock, the British politician speeches. Some people uh, really doubt that. But the thing, the coup de grace for him was, uh, you know, the uh, allegations that he had fabricated his academic record. So he went into the tank big time after that. People thought he was a dead letter politically. And then we have this unbelievable resurrection in 2008 uh, after really running just about the most lackluster presidential campaign one could possibly imagine. So this guy is, is uh, if nothing else, uh, a survivor and somebody who really, and, and I think the dominant thread in my piece, and I think really it encapsulates, and, and I've heard positive feedback from his people on this aspect of that, is that this is a guy who loves the ride. He does not want the ride to end. He is addicted to comebacks. And I really do think going forward, uh, as irrational as it may seem for him to run for president, uh, you have to look at it from his frame. And this is a guy who just loves this stuff. Yeah, and I want to go back to that first chapter again because you brought up a very important turning point. And uh, I want to hear him talk about uh, uh, the death of his wife uh, and his daughter and in a remarkable speech that he gave to military families not that long ago. You knew, you just felt it in your bones. Something bad happened. And I knew, I don't know how I knew, but the call said, my wife was dead, my daughter was dead, and I wasn't sure how my sons were gonna make it. For the first time in my life, I understood how someone could consciously decide to commit suicide. Not because they were deranged, not because they were nuts, because they'd been to the top of the mountain and they just knew in their heart they'd never get there again. Glenn, Vice President Biden is, <clears throat> has been one of those happy warriors at many moments in his life. One of my neighbors when I lived in D.C. for many years was uh, a young Beau Biden. And uh, as of last year, you saw uh, Biden take a turn away from the happy warrior because uh, Beau was indeed quite ill. Uh, how did that affect the way Vice President Biden is today. Yeah, I don't think people really, really understand the, the degree to which 2013 was a very tense year for the for the vice president, Bo Biden. Um, you know, it is still ambiguous what occurred here. He had a stroke or some sort of a uh, some sort of a neurological event. Uh, I think it was in 2011, and then uh, midway through last year, in the spring into the summer, the doctors discovered a mass, and there was some kind of a procedure. His office is neither Bo Biden's office. Uh, nor the vice president's office has disclosed precisely what that procedure was, but there was some sort of procedure performed on him in the summer, and his recovery period was was rather lengthy. Uh, people tell me, 
you know, while his health has stabilized and they and uh, publicly folks have pronounced him well, there is still great concern about it. And um, you know, Joe Biden was sworn in at Bo Biden and Hunt Biden's bedside in 1972. The bond between this guy and his sons uh, and his daughter, uh, who was born afterwards, uh, is not to be underestimated. Bo Biden is somebody who is extraordinarily close to the vice president. And I was told that part of the reason Biden sort of disappeared for the past, for the last three or four months of, uh, of 2013 was because of that. And one of the reasons he reemerged and one of the reasons he huddled with his advisors so intensively over the Christmas holiday was not necessarily just to deal with 2016, but to make up for the lost time in 2013 where he he was a very distracted guy. Uh, so both the situation involving Bo was a distraction, <clears throat> but you also talk about uh, John McCain talking about his friend Vice President Biden as being in the witness protection program as it relates to the uh, budget negotiations. What about the sort of declining or changing relationship of his uh, with his colleagues on the Hill, like Senator Harry Reid and and uh, and President Obama and, and the where he fits in that model? Because he was always the perfect guy to deal with his old Senate colleagues on the Hill. Well, yeah, that well, the expiration date on Joe Biden as sort of the legislator in chief uh, has been reached. Um, you know, Biden, as has been famously documented by many other people, played a pivotal role in a lot of these really loveless, unloved, unglamorous budget deals that have really kept the country going. I mean, he's been he's been the guy who's been in there cutting the deal late, um, and that is now over in large measure because a lot of that stuff's been cleared up. We now have have for the first time anything approaching a normal normal budget cycle, even though it's not really normal. Um, but the crisis is occurring every 15 minutes now. Um, so that is over. And the other thing about it is that Harry Reid, uh, Biden's former colleague in the Senate, who is not the biggest Biden fan in the world, it should be said, uh, has sort of put the kibosh along with a lot of the other Senate leader on Biden coming in and, and saving the day. So people, so as Obama's authority uh, and as his juice on the Hill erodes over time naturally, and, and unnaturally to some extent because his, his, because his influence is declining much more rapidly than most second-term presidents. Biden's does, too. That said, if the you-know-what hits the fan again, Biden is still likely to be the go-to guy. And that really is his philosophy as vice president. He had, he had a couple of models to choose from. The, the uh, Al Gore model of picking one or two issues, the uh, Dick Cheney model of trying to be the war consigliere. He has chosen uh, the kind of utility player role. Whatever pops up, he will take care of. And for that reason, for instance, he spent much of the last two months dealing with Ukraine. So, uh, you know, Biden is basically the administration's catcher's mitt. Whatever gets thrown at him, uh, he tries to get in front of. And sometimes, as the president himself might say, uh, the vice president will occasionally get a little bit out over his skis. Uh, two of the most notable, or one of the most notable ones, of course, were his comments with David Gregory on Meet the Press about gay marriage. I want to hear a little bit of that. The president has said that his views on gay marriage, on same-sex marriage, have evolved, but he's opposed to it. You're opposed to it. Have your views evolved? Look, uh, I just think uh, that uh, the good news is that as more and more Americans be- come to understand what this is all about is a simple proposition. Who do you love? Who do you love? And will you be loyal to the person you love? And that's what people are finding out is what, what all marriages at their root are about. Whether they're marriages of lesbians or gay men or heterosexuals. Glenn Thrush, in your 
rides on Amtrak up to Wilmington or any of the other time you spent with Vice President Biden. Did you probe on how this came to pass that the vice president basically led the administration's uh, change in view on gay marriage? Well, it's interesting. By, by the way, am I the only person, every time I hear that clip, I think of Bo Diddley singing, Who Do You Love? Um, Who Do You Love? Right. Um, I, I, I spoke with him a little bit about it, but I, but I did spend a lot of time, and I also reported on that in real time as it was going on, and in a couple of our e-books that, that we published in the last election cycle. But um, I, I think a pretty the narrative on that is... is uh, and it's still unclear whether Biden was attempting to define himself independent of the president. I personally believe he was. He was clearly looking to prod Obama into this this decision. And the interesting dynamic on this um, is twofold. Obama's political people were infuriated with Biden's people. I was hearing at the time that uh, in the uh, and, and this is the White House is a very small microclimate that in the. Uh, in the cafeteria in the basement of the White House, the Obama senior Obama communications people were not even acknowledging the presence of Biden aides for a couple of months. They were so infuriated with the vice president. Every White House. Right. But the flip of that is, subsequent to this happening, I have had conversations with senior Obama administration officials who told me that the vast majority of the staff, including some of the people who took it out on the Biden staff, the vast majority of the White House, West Wing staff, completely agreed with Biden's position and were happy that Obama was kind of pushed into the light on this. But that, I think that in and of itself, that whole episode, episode illustrates the way that this particular White House uh, works in terms of uh, a very at the very, very top, this, this, this caution, sometimes wise, sometimes debilitating, uh, always seems to uh, come into conflict with anyone, whether it's Biden or someone else internally, who's looking to push for something faster. So you give us this image, uh, Glenn Thrush, of uh, Rachetti, Klain, <clears throat> other folks coming to Wilmington to talk about how to turn the page as you go into 2014, how to make up for lost time, how to perhaps position uh, yourself for the future should Secretary Clinton not run, or even if she does run. A few things certainly have changed uh, to brighten the atmosphere. One of them is uh, Vice President Biden willing to do things like going on Seth Meyers' new TV show. Hear a clip of that. Remiss, if I didn't, you've been very open about talking about 2016 and considering what you're going to do. Uh, how, where are you in your thought process? What are you taking into account? Well, you know, I was planning on making a major announcement tonight, and uh, <laughs> but I decided tonight's your night. Thank you. Uh, thank you. So, uh, thank you. So I hope you'll invite me back. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and Amy, your 2016 plans? Oh, um, I'm going to run for president. Okay, great. <laughs> That's Amy Poehler, Glenn. Uh, so Joe Biden in winter is is actually showing a little bit of uh, sunshine coming out again. Well, I mean, that, I mean, uh, as we use that metaphor, I don't think we mean you know that this guy is is, is becoming a, a grim shut-in anytime soon. Um, but but he really is at this incredible moment. That's the reason I wrote the piece. You know, we we write a lot of political stories, and we write a lot of handicapping uh, stories. Uh, you know, in fact, in twenty. A parenthetical here is during the 2012 campaign, I wrote, I probably wrote the first story that, that indicated Biden was very much in, interested in running for president in 2016, and I was duly mo- mocked by everybody, including Mark Leibovich in his book. <laughs> and, uh, you know, 
the truth is, I don't view the Biden in right. My approach to this was not necessarily viewing this as a political story. This is really a personal story. I mean, um, my parents are dead now, but you know, uh, uh, I dealt with their retirement and their transitioning from their work lives to their retiring years, and and I think everybody of a certain age gets to some extent to the point where Joe Biden is right now. They've gotten really good at what they're doing. Um, they have a lot of unfinished business, and yet they are forced to get off the ride. Hillary Clinton is, what is she now, 66? She's going to be 68 during this campaign. That's, you know, I remember when it was a big deal that Ronald Reagan was 70 years old when he was running for president. Now it's less, it seems less significant, but Hillary Clinton is facing some of these same dynamics. She is not uh, a young woman any longer, uh, and one of the reasons one of the most compelling reasons for her to run in 2016 is the same as Joe Biden. I mean, this is uh, an ambition both of them have had, uh, and they are getting to the end of their career, uh, and they really both believe, I think, and, and in hanging around with Biden, that is the one thing I am certain of. Joe Biden believes that he would be a better president than anyone, including Hillary Clinton, uh, and perhaps including Barack Obama. <laughs> Uh, and, and I think that's what makes it such a compelling story. I, we're all going to face this, man. We're all going to be at some point where the clock is, is ticking, ticking out on us and we still have unfinished business. And I think that is fundamentally uh, the story of Joe Biden at this point. He is a guy uh, who feels he's got a lot more to do. Don't we know it? I mean, and and if uh, the idea is whether you can get on the ride or, or you're not ready to get off the ride, when you're de- dealing with Vice President Biden, the ride is often an Amtrak train. So just to put a little bit of uh, a point in his own words, let's hear a little bit of him saying <clears throat> basically that same thing to Kate Baldwin of CNN. You had a lot of fun earlier this week with speaking to the UAW. I did. Talking about Corvettes, talking yeah. about going to, from zero to 60 in 3.4 seconds. That's right, man. And that was the one reason you said you would not run for president. Well, hey, I, other than Corvettes, give me another good reason why you shouldn't run. I can't. Yeah? There may be reasons I don't run, but there's no obvious reason for me why I think I should not run. Can I have a timetable? Probably the realistically uh, a year this summer. Is Dr. Biden on board? When I ran the first time, um, Jill didn't want to run again. Second time, she came to me and said, you've got to run. The reason she wanted me to run? Because she was convinced if I ran, we'd end the war in Iraq and have a sounder foreign policy. And she was convinced that if I ran, I would work like hell to make sure the middle class got a fighting chance. For me, the decision to run or not run is going to be determined by me as to whether I am the best qualified person to focus on the two things I've spent my whole life on, giving ordinary people a fighting chance to make it and a sound foreign policy that's based on rational interest to the United States, where we not only are known for the, 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 the power of our military, but the power of our example. So, Glenn Thrush, having talked to Amy Chozik earlier, thinking about Planet Hillary, I've got reasons why Hillary Clinton would not run uh, the idea that, uh, for age, for the ability, the fact that they're living a great life now, that eventually they'll be grandparents. Why put yourself through this to br- basically bring yourself up to age 80 instead of sit back and enjoy the, the plateau at which you've arrived? Uh, but let's say, uh, because you know this, you know this story better than anyone at else at this point, let's say Hillary does run, what, what he just said to Kate Baldwin and he, what he said to you, if Hillary's running, does Vice President Biden run too? Look, you know, I wasn't a bad catcher in high school, right? 
um, I could I could block the plate pretty well, and I had a decent arm. But uh, and I had all sorts of ambitions. But when it came down to it, nobody offered me a scholarship. <laughs> and I think when you are uh, Joe Biden, I think you can enter this sort of a process. And it is a hellacious process if you're on the bad end of it. And I was with Hillary for 18, 18 months in 2007 and 2008, and I saw what it looked like uh, when it wasn't going well. Um, that said, I think Biden, for all of his will to run, for all of his force of character, for all of his spirit, uh, at some point he's got to reckon with, with three things. The first is he doesn't have the money, and he's probably not going to be able to raise it, even if she leaves the race. He doesn't have the second, uh, the second component is he doesn't have the people. There are, there's a, di- a diaspora, and he doesn't have a, uh, a real compelling argument to sort of marshal himself as the, de- as the person that Democrats uh, rally against. And the third gets back, I think, to his history and the fact that he has run for president twice before. The, the main selling point of Barack Obama in 2008 is he was something new. My gut feeling is if Hillary doesn't run, the Democratic Party is going to turn to someone new. Um, could be Elizabeth Warren, could be someone else. But um, I think when it comes right down to it, uh, he will be forced to deal, uh, unless something fundamental changes with the reality that the market simply won't bear him. Glenn Thrush, author of Biden in Winter for Politico magazine, uh, and also the author of Locked in the Cabinet for the magazine's debut. Uh, anything on your uh, computer screen now that you're working on? Share about what's coming next from you? Well, I, I don't want to tip my hand, but I am, um, um, and, and it is a little bit like Groundhog Day, uh, uh, diving back into a, a Hillary Clinton story. I had promised myself I wasn't going to do that until uh, much later in the year, but I think things are moving so quickly that to not write about Hillary Clinton uh, is to not write about American politics. Well, Glenn, we will follow this quixotic adventure. It's like uh, watching the man of La Mancha unfold right before our eyes, uh, whether it's Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton, a great piece of drama for American politics. Thanks a lot for joining us on Polyoptics. Thank you. And the world will be better for this That one man scorned and covered with scars Still strove with his last ounce of courage To reach the unreachable stars That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS.